Let's open our Bibles, please, to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Since since having knee replacement this year, I've been uh, getting in the hot tub most evenings. uh, Help the uh, healing process. Uh, My hot tub's out in the backyard in the corner, and and, uh, my backyard has has about a five-foot high... uh, change in height to my neighbor's yard and and my wood fence is on that taller level so when I when I sit in the hot tub I'm kind of looking up at the fence and the garden right there and there's another fence on the edge to the other neighbors over that way I go out there and just flop the cover back halfway and sink down in and just glory you know I hope there's hot tubs in heaven I hope Mike has to take care of them though not me (laughs) But I just slip in there, and uh, you know, some nights it's light, like it has been this week from the moon, and some nights it's dark. And I, I got in there a few months ago in the dark, or uh, not too many months ago, a couple months ago, and it was dark, and I'm just uh, enjoying that warm water. And I hear this on the top of the fence. And, I, and so I think, oh, there's a cat up there. And, and uh, you know, and I, I, there's some kind of some trees, and it's kind of coming out of the trees from the other fence. And, and so, you know, I don't have my glasses on, of course, in the hot tub, and, and it's dark, and so I'm making noise and, you know, trying to scare the darn thing to go the other way. I don't want it in my yard. I'm allergic to cats, so I, I don't want it to have anything to do with it. And I make noise, and it stops. And so I make some more noise, and, and it moves a little bit, then it stops. And then I squint real hard, and I go, that's a raccoon. And then I apologized, and I prayed to God that it wouldn't come down and take my hot tub away from me. (laughs) And he ran off down the other way. Mm. With more light and better vision, I would have known right away what I was dealing with and how to deal with it. When it comes to certain issues in our society and in human experience, our society has told us a series of things, and it, it contradicts God's word, but we can't quite see it. We can't quite grasp it. We're a bit in the dark because perhaps we haven't understood God's truth clearly enough, which he refers to as light and Jesus himself as the light of the world. In the last two weeks, we've been trying to get some of God's light on the issue of homosexual behavior and homosexual identity. And we've understood that homosexual behavior is a sin. God does define it quite clearly. And that it develops over many years. It is not inborn. It is not genetic or biological. But it is something that is developed. And that's something we have learned. For those of you that might be here for the first time. We have learned that not only from God's word. But we've learned it from the folks out in the world. Who have come to the only conclusion that they can come to. Which is that this is something that is learned. It essentially is the wrong response to certain difficulties in life. But there's one more question we need to answer today. We need a little bit more light, and that is this. How can a person living in a homosexual identity regain what God created them to be? And I want to start in John chapter 10, verse 1. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Jesus is, is, this is an illustration for his sermon. He's not talking about a specific person here. He's talking about a common scenario that they had. He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way, that one is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door of the sheep, that one is the shepherd. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This morning, when my grandson came up the stairs with his mother, Titus, you know, he's being carried, I said, good morning, little man, and he went. (laughs) 
I said, happy birthday. Yeah, it's his birthday today. Mm-mm, mm-mm. You are not my shepherd. <laughs> you know, in the Bible times, they had such a relationship with the sheep, they literally did call them and lead them. They would speak, and the sheep recognized them, and they didn't drive them with a dog. They, they said, come on, we're going out to the pasture, and they walked, and the sheep followed. That's what he's talking about here. This, this is not some made-up thing. This is... This was reality in their day. I know they don't do it that way today, but that's how they did it. I think their sheep flocks were a little smaller back then a lot of times. Verse 6, Jesus used this illustration, but the disciples did not understand. What are you talking about? Then Jesus said to them again, in other words, he's going to give some explanation. Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life, and they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling, the one who is paid, he flees because he's a hireling. He does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is drawing a contrast between him and his way of life and salvation and all others. And he's trying to help them understand that there's only one path to a complete life. There's only one path. And the reason for that is because of the nature of all the other people who want to talk to you about your life. Jesus said, here I am. I am not only the door, the the path into a good life. I am the shepherd who will make that possible for you. Now there are other people who are coming around you and they are after you. He calls them thieves and he says they're there to kill and to destroy and, and so on. This passage is in response to the Pharisees who were mad at Jesus, get this, for healing a guy. Because he healed him on the Sabbath, and that didn't square with their system. And so they were mad at him. And so Jesus said, look, disciples, there's two kind of people after your soul. There's the thief kind who are self-serving. A person who steals by their nature is not interested in the person they steal from, right? How many of you have been burglarized? I've been burglarized several times. Not here, thank the Lord. Had my car prowled here once. I've never stopped and said, that thief, he loves me so. (laughs) See, Jesus is saying there are people who are after you. There are people who want you. And in our context today, I would say there are people who will say, this is what your soul needs. Jesus says they're thieves. They are self-driven, not other-driven. There are two kinds of people who will be after your soul. One kind is self-serving, the thief. The other kind has your best interest at heart, the shepherd. The self-centered nature of the Pharisees is summarized in a discussion that happened just a little bit farther down the road in John chapter 11 in verse 47. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man does many miracles. Now what miracle had elicited this response? He raised Lazarus from the dead. Now that seems like a nice thing to do. Guy's dead. His sisters are missing him, and they're calling out to Jesus for help, and he says, this is for the glory of God, and he raises him from the dead. And the Pharisees and the chief priests go, what are we going to do with this guy? If we let him alone, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. 
And from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Now think about it. He raised a guy from the dead, and the response of the people outside of Christ was, we're going to kill him. Because if we don't kill him, we are going to lose out. Were they interested in Lazarus at all? Were they interested in Mary and Martha? No. Were they interested in the rest of society? No. They said, we are going to lose, and so we're going to go after him. And we're going to try to kill him, because if we don't, we will lose. That's the nature of a thief. The thief is after their own way of life. Let me put it to you this way. They could only envision a complete life if they were in control. That's all they could envision. They said, we're going to lose our place and our nation. They looked around and said, there's only one way our life can be good and complete and whole is if we are in control, and this man is going to interrupt that, and so he has to go. That is the nature of the thief. The thief wants his own way, and the people around you in the world are going to give you input based on what is best for them. They are not going to give you input based on what is best for you. And you have to remember this about the world around us. How much of the world lies under the sway of the evil one? What? The whole world. Boy, that's hard to grasp. That is hard for us to look out at our society and say the whole society is under the sway of Satan. The way that the world around us thinks about homosexuality is not driven by what is good for you. It's driven by what is good for them. When you stand and say, Christ has the answer. You know, there used to be a church down in Tacoma with a giant neon sign. Christ is the answer. They took it down. Now it says Jesus loves you. Because when you say Christ is the answer, you cut across some lines that people don't like. The wisdom and apparent care for your soul that comes from our society is inspired by the ruler of that society, the devil. And it is not capable of bringing completion to your soul. The most you can expect is feeling good for a while. The care that comes from our society is not designed for your good, it's designed for their good. And the most you can expect is feeling good for a while. Um, Somebody on my Facebook page passed on a little video by a guy named Jerry Seinfeld. If you're uh, older than 12, you probably know who he is famous comedian, TV actor. He received an award like like an Emmy or an Oscar, only it's for advertising. You know, he's been in a lot of commercials and so on. And the award is called a Clio. He's laughing, but that is exactly the way the world thinks. Five minutes of happiness. Better than nothing. I know this thing, he, he uses the word stink, I know this thing is going to stink. Let me put it in real terms. I know this thing is not going to be as exciting and dynamic and blessed in my life as I want it to be. I'm, I'm going to buy a new car and it's going to be the most wonderful thing in the world and it will be right up until it gets a dent or, or the gas price goes up or whatever. I, I'm going to buy this new pair of pants. I got, I got a new shirt today, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my five minutes today. (laughs) The five-minute joy plan must be what guides the formulation of many things in the world, including relationships. Well, I got five minutes of joy. That's the best it's going to be. Folks, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and if he can't have your soul, nobody else will get it. What's the alternative? What's the alternative here? 
If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life in me for my sake will find it. You see, the shepherd says, I'm telling you, the more you go after stuff, as Jerry Seinfeld said, if you're not happy, you need different stuff. The truth is, that doesn't work. His good friend, Robin Williams, took his own life. He had a lot of stuff, right? How many big-time actors have we seen flame out, kill themselves by accident with drugs? They had a lot of stuff. The thief, the world around you is after your soul. They're telling you they have something that will make your soul feel good, but the reality is it will ruin your soul. You go after it by their, you, you try to hang on to your life according to the plan of the world, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Why is the Christ life, the only path to a complete life. Number one, or I should say number two, the reason is this. Christ is the path to forgiveness. Not only is there only one path, it's either the world or Christ, but number two, Christ is the path to forgiveness. You remember the story where Jesus is going about his ministry and and the Pharisees who were trying, always trying to trip him up, always trying to find a reason to criticize him and hate him, they brought a woman, and they said, hey, this woman was caught in adultery. Now, they knew the Old Testament standard was capital punishment for, for adultery. Yeah, that's really harsh. We don't have time to talk about that. But they knew that, and so what they're, they're bringing her in, and they're wanting to say, okay, Jesus, are you going to tell us to stone her? Or are you going to just tell her to go free? Because if he did, he's not following the law. They're trying to trip him up. So here's a woman caught in adultery. How would they know she was going to commit adultery? They had to know who she was hanging with, or she had to be a woman who did that a lot. And I'm guessing she had a lot of sin on her plate. Look what Jesus says. So when they continued asking him, you know, what are we going to do with this woman? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? He raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin, let him throw a stone first at her. And again, he stooped down, and he wrote on the ground, and those who heard it being convicted by their conscience. Is it possible they were all adulterers too? They were convicted by their conscience. They went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus, he, he, he's, I don't know what he's doodling in the dirt. You know, people have speculated a lot of things, but... He's just letting them have their moment to think this through. And he stands up and he goes, hmm, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is one of the sweetest parts of the gospel right here because it shows us what God wants to do for people. He wants to forgive their sin. And, 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 and this, uh, this uh, you know, right, right after the most famous verse in the Bible, Jesus reiterates that. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. People who don't know God's word and don't know Christianity say, you, you're just about criticizing sin and so on. No, we're not. We're about calling sin, sin, so that forgiveness can be had. That's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to forgive. In fact, Colossians 1 tells us, when we ask the question, why is it only Christ who can forgive? It's because we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. When we sinned in our parents, Adam and Eve, and also in our own lives today, we deserve punishment. We deserve to go to hell. But God is gracious, and he does not want to condemn. So he sent his son, the God-man, who took on a human, the God who took on a human nature. He lived, he died, he shed his blood on a cross so that if we would believe, our sins would be 
forgiven. You know, the, the thief, the world around us, has two ideas about forgiveness. And the first one is this. It's not needed. You don't need forgiveness because there is no such thing as right and wrong. Right and wrong is only defined by hurting someone else. Do you hear the apologies from the politicians these days? If you were offended, I apologize. There's no essence of right and wrong. It's, oh, did I hurt your feelings? I'm sorry for that. The world says you don't need forgiveness. And right close on its heels is forgive yourself. Just tell yourself it's okay. You know what the problem with that is? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And down there inside is that guilt, that guilt, that guilt, that guilt. And guilt does all kinds of bad things to you. Neither one of these works. Neither one of these frees your conscience. But when you humbly believe in Christ as your Savior, your sin is forgiven. And that enables the next great blessing of a complete life, which is peace. Christ is the path to peace. Listen to this great passage from Romans 5. Having been justified or made righteous by faith, we've believed in Christ and God's taken away our sin and made us righteous. That's what it means to be justified. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The medicine your soul longs for is peace with God. Peace with God makes us confident of a relationship with Him. Romans 8, 16 says, The Holy Spirit is in us, and we know we're God's. The reason we can have confidence about other things is because of our relationship with Him. And of course, that gives us confidence to ask Him for help. Hebrews 4, 16 says, Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. A number of times over the years in my work as a chaplain, people will say something to me about praying because I've got an in with the man upstairs. And clearly what they're saying is they don't. And you know what? That's true. I don't have a special in. I'm just like every other Christian in that regard. But I do have an in that an unbeliever doesn't have. And that gives me peace in my soul. I can look God right in the face right now. I can imagine that I'm in heaven looking him right in the face. And you know what? It's not because I'm a great man. It's because I have a great Savior who's taken away my sin. You know, in the Old Testament, when the prophets had visions of God, they didn't look into God's face. Somebody like Isaiah, he went, Woe is me! I am, a, I am an unclean man! I am undone! Woe is me! I'm a sinful man! And God had to come down in the vision even and give him a vision of being purified of his sin. That's the difference between that Old Testament era and now. Once Christ has come, our sins are forgiven and we can look straight into the face of God. And we can come straight to God and say, Oh God, I need some help. Oh God, I'm having a difficulty. Oh God, I need some wisdom. We can come straight to Him. That is the medicine our soul longs for. That is the medicine we're longing for. We're confident of eternity with Him. I, I hope I don't die soon. I got a lot of stuff I'd like to do for the Lord. I'd like to hang around till Titus comes to love me. <laughs> I might not live that long. <laughs> but I'm ready. With all the sincerity that I can share with you, I'm ready. And that is not because of me. It's not because I, I'm somehow special, I'm, I'm somehow extra righteous. It's because of the salvation that God gives us, and he gives it to all freely. And, and here is a critical thing, when it comes back to people who have chosen poor life paths because of a response to difficulty, the medicine that our soul longs for is peace, which gives us purpose in suffering. Look at the rest of the Romans 5 passage. First of all, he said we have peace with God because we're justified through faith. 
through whom, Jesus, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we glory in tribulations or difficulties, hardships. Why? Because tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. You know how you can be optimistic about life? It's by walking in Christ by receiving what he is doing, by taking his help. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The only way we can have peace about the difficulties of life is to have a life in Christ. There is nothing in the world. You can get stuff in the world that will numb your pain. You can get it with a prescription. You can get it without a prescription. You can pursue activities that make you feel good. But the peace won't come. The peace won't come. Only Christ is the path to peace and the path to joy. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and your joy may be full. Do you, do you picture Jesus as a, as a joyful person? Or do you, do you picture him going, oh man, I have to live here for 33 years. Oh, God, got it. I liked heaven. The beds down here are terrible. No, you don't picture him that way because he, he, he had a purpose to his life. Did he, did he suffer difficulties? He suffered difficulties from the moment he entered into conception and his life became limited by choice to a human existence. And then, of course, we're familiar with all the terrible things he suffered in that last week of his life, not to mention the three years of people criticizing and insulting. Oh, you're just doing that stuff by the power of Satan. He suffered and suffered and suffered, and yet it, it, it says that he lived his life because of the joy that was set before him. Living in sin creates guilt, and guilt feels bad. That's really simple, but it's really important to remember. Living in sin creates guilt, and guilt feels bad. In our guilt-induced sorrow... We naturally reach for something to make us feel better. In our guilt-induced sorrow, we reach for things to make us feel better. And you know the list. that goes all the way from, from really crazy wicked over here to stuff that everybody thinks is pretty good. But one of the things that can make you feel good for a while can give you that five minutes of joy is sex. And that's why people pursue a life of promiscuity, whether it be homosexual or heterosexual. That's why people look at pornography because it makes them feel good for a while. We, we have that testimony about sin in, in Hebrews chapter 10 or 11 when Moses deferred against the pleasure of sin for a season. There is a season of pleasure with sin. Sex feels good. The attention of another human being, whether it's attention I should have or I shouldn't have, that attention feels good. Flattery works. The, the joy of, of new love and a new relationship is exciting. It feels good, there's no doubt about it. And when you've been living in guilt as a result of sin, anything that feels good is welcome. But you will never be able to, life will never be enjoyable while you're carrying a load of guilt. You may grab some pieces of joy here or there, this or that, but they will fade and you will be left with that load of guilt which will drive you into more shallow and most likely sinful pursuits which will further burden your soul. But what Christ brings us is joy. 
the fruit of the Spirit. When we accept Christ, the Holy Spirit is placed within us. And as we walk in righteousness, these are the first three things that God is at work producing in us. Love, joy, peace. I think that's a summary of the the three things that most people want most. When you're living in sin and the short-term blessings that come with sin, it's hard to imagine giving up those little blessings in order to get God's real, enduring, consistent blessings. It's hard to envision something that goes beyond a moment of fleeting pleasure followed by hours of guilt. But God's joy is like this. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. Now God is not saying that if you truly follow Christ, you will never have sadness. I can look right around this room. I could ask you to raise your hand at people who have had sadness. He's not talking about the normal sadness of life. What he's talking about is the bitter sweet of the blessings of sin. The blessing of sin is here's a little bit of pleasure and immediately there's guilt that goes with it or there is a greater ruin that comes to life, the the corruption of our life because we have chosen to walk in sin, walk in sin, walk in sin. When we choose righteousness, there's no corruption that comes with it. We have a clear conscience. We have joy about the things of life and we continue to walk forward with the Lord. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it and as we already have read and i want to look at again christ is the path to love Um, listen to these great words from hebrews 13 let your conduct be without covetousness or greediness or living to get stuff or relationships or things you can let go of that and be content why Because he himself, God himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. As we looked last week, as we heard testimonies by reading from people who have lived in a homosexual lifestyle, one of the great things that drove them to find any affection they could was the deficit in affection in their younger lives. When we can come to know God, we have a friend who is closer than a brother, a friend who is always there. You don't need to crave after relationship if God, the ultimate relationship, is already always with you. No one on earth can be with you 24-7. Even if they could, they would not meet your needs as Christ can. I could... I could ask everyone who's married here to raise a hand and answer this question, but I won't. Has your spouse ever failed to meet all your expectations? I think the answer would be, uh, yeah. Been a couple of times. Okay. And you know what? That's normal. It's normal because, number one, our expectations are wrong or too high. And it's normal because no human being can possibly meet all of the needs of our heart. But the good news is Jesus Christ can. When when, when we're having a time of difficulty, when we're in the hospital bed, when we feel rejected by people, when, when we're struggling at work or at school, no matter what's going on, there is that friend who sticks closer than a brother. And if that is the reality in our life, We don't have to clamor. We don't have to to covet, to greedily go after anything we can find that will meet our needs. No matter how ruined your family was and how little love you received, you are completely loved by Christ. He is always there for you. The little chorus is still true. Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need. All, all I need. He was crucified for me. He died. All, all I need. That's the reality of Christ. And there is nothing in this world, no matter how, how great it portrays itself, there is nothing that will take his place. 
nothing. Turn with me to Matthew 5. And, and let's think for a minute in a slightly different direction. But here's the question that I want to ask now. This was the original conclusion to the sermon in week one, if you're interested. How is that message that we've been talking about, the message that Christ can meet your needs, that the world cannot meet your needs, how is that message going to get to those who struggle with homosexual identity? Well, I believe the answer is here in in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those only who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same thing? And if you greet your brethren only... What do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, some of you are thinking, are you telling me that, are you calling homosexuals our enemy? Absolutely not. Here's what I'm saying. There's several commands to love in the Scripture. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 comes to mind, the great explanation of what love is. Uh, Ephesians chapter uh, 5, be imitators of God and love as dear children. There's lots of commands to love. For most Christians, homosexuality is something way on the other side of the room. Something a little strange, a little unwelcome, a little misunderstood or not understood. And for some Christians, there is a enemy kind of relationship. I certainly don't consider people with a homosexual identity to be enemies. But I've chosen this passage because this passage says, it says two things. Number one, right at the end, toward the end of the passage, it said, if you're only going to love the people that love you, that isn't Christian. In other words, uh, when I come to church and I walk around before church, hey, how you doing, how you doing, how you doing, how you doing? If I went to Capitol Hill in Seattle or to wherever the center of the uh, culture is in San Francisco, would I go there thinking, hey, these are my people? Okay, how, how am I... What I'm getting to here is how do you think about people with any kind of sinful identity? There may be some other kind of sinful identity that you hate worse. Uh, Maybe people from that major religion in the Middle East. You think, man, I don't like those people. What What if some of those people came into our church wearing the traditional... How would you respond to them? It's the same thing, see? Because the question I want to ask, and the reason I've, I've titled this message, what does it say up there? Loving Samaria. When Jesus sent the disciples out, he said, go to Jerusalem. They go, yeah, go into Jerusalem. That's my hometown. Go to Judea. Yeah, that's the area where Jerusalem is in, like the county, if you will. And then he said, go to Samaria. Ooh, I don't like those people. That's what he said. I mean, that that was their attitude. There was hatred between those two groups of people. And and that's what Jesus is, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That was was at the end of his ministry. But he says, if you're only going to love the people that love you, that's that's not a godly thing. You've got to go beyond those who you would say love you. You've got to go beyond those who you naturally like. And that's when this passage kicks in. And, and you know what God's standard is for reaching out to people that we don't like? It's the same as reaching out to people that we do like. And so the first command would be, well, and here's, here's the associated uh, part of my question. How, are, how is this message going to get to people who struggle with homosexual identity only by you and me? 
only by you and me. We are God's hands and feet and mouth. We've got to keep that in mind. And so from Matthew 5, I would say, number one, we have to choose compassion. Love your, let's just broaden it out and say, you have a requirement to love everybody you come in contact with. The significance of this command, however, is just that, that it's a command and that this kind of love is, it's a verb and it is a chosen mentality and a chosen behavior. Now, I, I know I've, I've certainly talked to enough people over the years who talk about a relationship in their life and they say, well, I just don't feel like loving. I get that. I don't always feel that way either. But that's not the basis of God's love. God's love is the basis of what is the right thing? What is the best thing? What is the thing that is needed? And so he, let me put it this way, as I have in the notes. Choose. Choose love. Don't wait to feel it. You'd be with the Lord before that happens. Choose love. It is a verb. It is an action. And 1 Corinthians 13 does define it in great length. But this passage, I think, actually goes on to define it further also when it says, speak with compassion or speak with love. He says, bless those who curse you. You know, the, the most current specific application of this is that mayor in Texas who is a lesbian who basically said I don't like what you're preaching in those churches and what's our response supposed to be what's our response supposed to be blessing which is another way to say speak good I've summarized these three things this way. We'll get to the other two in just a minute. Say good, do good, pray good. And that's toward anybody that you struggle with. In particular, today we're thinking about homosexuality. Speak with compassion. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace. Do you want to know why you shouldn't say derogatory things or use pejoratives, there's a great word, that is negative names for classes of people because of that command right there, not because of being politically correct. You can hate political correctness all you want, but you cannot talk bad. Speak with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. That's about the content that we deliver and the way that we deliver it. Choose compassion, speak compassion. When I was serving in another jurisdiction in a police department, I said one of the, I said something that, that I regret probably more than almost anything else I've ever said because I said something tremendously insulting to a homosexual police officer. Now, the reason I said it was I was quoting what I had heard from other police officers about a certain duty they had and the name that they gave that duty. And I pulled over and was trying to make small talk with a couple officers who were having a, a break, you know, sitting by their car. And I said, oh, are you doing... And as soon as the words left my mouth, I went, oh, God. I was trying to be funny. I was trying to be liked. Two of my great strengths. Used horribly wrong. I should have wanted to, I should have been driving up saying, oh God, what could I say that would draw them to Christ? Instead, I drove them away. from a testimony of a woman who lived as a lesbian and then came to regain her, her place that God had made for her. Uh, part of my confusion about God and Christianity 
stemmed from the fact that I couldn't reconcile my heart's yearning. God had started to draw her in and she was yearning for God. I couldn't reconcile my heart's yearning with the hostile behavior I encountered in most Christians. Rarely did I see anyone reflecting the heart or nature of the God who was pursuing me. On one occasion, however, I encountered a Christian activist. This this centered around abortion clinic uh, protesting. On one, and she was protesting on the abortion side, and here's a Christian on the other side. On one occasion, I encountered a Christian activist who chose to engage me with the gospel rather than with hostile stares, violence, and moralizing. It was a Saturday afternoon in the midst of a rescue, quote-unquote, outside of an abortion clinic in D.C. Another woman and I were following a couple of pro-life men in an attempt to catch them in the act of violating a court injunction. As we moved away from the clinic, the chorus of chaotic chanting and singing faded away, and one of the men began talking about Jesus and his love for us. And after several tense minutes, I glanced at my friend's face. This man's words had melted her angry countenance. Uncomfortable with the situation, I pulled her away from the conversation. At the time, I considered his tactics highly manipulative. But now, I recognize that the power of the Holy Spirit was at work through him. It was the one time, the one time I can recall that someone from the pro-life side ever mentioned Jesus' love for me, not just for the victims of abortion. We need to choose our words very carefully, Christians, because it is our responsibility. We are not Americans first with the right to choose. We are Christians first and foremost and always. And so our mission is always people. And we've got to love people while not condoning the things that they may do that are wrong. We've got to choose compassion, speak with compassion, act with compassion, do good. He says, love your enemies, bless them. And then he says, do good. Look at it again. Bless them who who speak badly to you. That's tough. When people are throwing insult in your face, act with compassion. Do you remember uh, this episode from the life of Christ? Now, it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus had basically concluded his earthly ministry and he's getting ready now for the crucifixion. And so he just, he had actually avoided Jerusalem because it wasn't time for him to be arrested and so on. And so now he sets his face. He's headed to Jerusalem. And they sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. They entered a village of the Samaritans. Remember, those are the people that the Jews hated. And the Samaritans hated the Jews. It was a mutual hatred. Old Testament story to go with that. They entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him. Because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. In other words, they knew he was a pilgrim on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Just as Elijah did? Let's burn them all and let God sort them out. But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So they went to another village. We might not like the way a lot of people live their lives. That does not change our responsibility to love them, to act in love toward them. As I mentioned it earlier, Jesus said, you're going to be witnesses to me in Samaria. Okay, now, keep those two. When we read Acts 1 8, we think, oh, it's a wonderful missionary verse. When the disciples heard it, they thought, what? They would have sooner gone to the ends of the earth than to Samaria, which would probably be like going from one side of our county to the other, distance wise. Jesus said, yeah, you're going to reach them too. The people who you don't like, and you can fill in the blank today. 
you know, maybe you don't like this ethnic group or that ethnic group, or, or maybe, you know, you really struggle with homosexuals or whatever. We need to act with compassion. And then, number four, we need to pray with compassion. Pray for them. And, and, and I would just even put it this way. I know praying is listed last in the text, but I think it's a starting point. I think it's a starting point, and it's a midpoint, and it's an end point. <laughs> we need to start and say, oh, God, you know my heart isn't right toward this people group or that people group or people in this lifestyle or that lifestyle. Oh, God, first of all, change my heart and give me that heart of compassion. And second of all, Lord, I want to pray for these people that they will come to know the freedom that is in you. That's what I've been thinking about this week, the freedom that is in Christ, the joy and the peace and the love and the freedom of soul, not to have to pursue and, and, and worry and struggle and clamor after things. <sighs> if, I bought, if I brought a missionary to our church who talked to you about slavery... You know, we could talk about Boko Haram, the Muslim extremistic group who has taken dozens, hundreds of, of young girls uh, hostage, uh, kidnapped, whatever you want to call it, in parts of Africa. I don't remember the country they're in. And if I brought a missionary in here who talked about the, the terribleness there and we took an offering, you'd open your wallet and you'd say, yeah, let's help this guy out. And some of you would even say, man, I'd like to go there and, and help with that. What I'm telling you here today is there are people all around you that are enslaved. They're enslaved every bit as much as anybody who's kidnapped anywhere in the world. In fact, I would submit to you they're, they're, they're enslaved in a worse way because the slavery of sin is not only real and powerful, it can send you to hell. If you never come into the freedom of Christ, the slavery of sin can send you to hell. But even as a believer, the slavery of sin robs you of the blessing God wants to give to you. And I would come back to that verse from Corinthians and say, who's going to help people come out of that lifestyle and regain what God has for them? It's us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the freedom that we have in you. I rejoice in that. And I pray that you would help us to spread that to others. Father, if there are people here today who are not living in your freedom, if they can't look you in the face with joy, would you please stir their hearts to do something about that today? To believe in Christ as Savior, to, to say no to some sin, to find help to change the enslavement that's in their life, would you please do that today? Would you start that journey for some people today? Would you honor your word that way today? I pray in Christ's name, amen.